First uh, Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. And what we do, if this is not your usual um, church, we have kind of a, a tradition in our church, and it's kind of based on we've 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 got, we, we're raised in a culture that has kind of lost track of honor and what it is to give honor. And so we always, when we read the scripture, we stand together in honor of God's word. Would you mind just uh, standing as we honor uh, the, the word of God? 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And then down in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, empty, worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Would you please pray with me? Lord, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross today so that we could encounter you, we could hear you. Lord, that right now there would be no distraction or confusion in our minds, but that we would be able to focus every, every age, every background, every, however we got into this place. Would you help us right now, Holy Spirit, to hear from Jesus and respond to him, we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the message is A Certain hope, a certain hope. Even that phrase, certain hope, is is an oxymoron to our minds. Hope always has to do with the future, and the future, by definition, is uncertain. So how do you get to a certain hope? I usually, at church, have three points, but it's Easter, So I have five. (laughs) Point one, what is the certain hope? What is the certain hope that that, the gospel brings? Paul says it's, to, to grasp it, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. In Adam, 
everybody died. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, death got into the human race. The day they ate, they were separated or died spiritually, but it led to them dying physically as well. So because you were born of Adam's race, because you're a, a, a human being, a homo sapien, you, you've, got, you've got death in your genes and you're, you're, you're going to die someday physically. Even as that is true, all who are born again in Jesus Christ are going to have eternal life. You get eternal life right away in your spirit and soul. But the certain hope of the gospel is one day it will be bodily too. This, this body that we currently have is, is referred to in scripture as our tent. Uh, a tent is a very temporary dwelling. It says that this, this body, when it goes into the ground, when we die, is a seed that is going to be raised up It is the seed of a new body, a dwelling that is eternal. We will have new bodies. Eternal life will be forever. And even as Christ was raised from the dead, so we too will be raised from the dead. Here's 2 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what, it is, what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing, guaranteeing what is to come. Those who have been born again in Jesus who have experienced the the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. That's just a down payment. It is the guarantee that one day we will be raised physically. We will have an eternal dwelling to live in. This tent, 2 Corinthians 4 says, is, is wasting away. There is a groaning about being in this body. Has anybody noticed that? This body gets older and it's got this ache and it's got this pain and, and there is this sense of, of is, this, is this it? And if this is it, it's really depressing because my, be- my best days are usually, you know, when I was 20 or 30 or whenever you think it was and, and then it's just kind of fading away and, and if this is it and, and, and all these pains and aches and my best days are behind, no, 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 no. For a believer, the best days are in front of us. The best, the best days are still to come. This, this is the certain hope. This is the guarantee of the gospel. Point two, the resurrection makes this certain hope available. We talk a lot about Passover. Jesus died on a, on a, a Jewish holiday called Passover, which is when they sacrificed the lamb and they applied the the blood of the lamb and the Jews were passed over and Jesus, we're going to have communion later, fulfills Passover. He is the lamb that every Jewish lamb was pointing to. And when we apply his blood, his sacrifice to our lives, we, we are excluded from God's 
judgment because God's judgment on sin already happened. It happened on the cross. And in that day, on our judgment day, we are passed over that, that, that Jesus says, whoever hears and believes my message has eternal life and will not come into judgment. He has passed over from death into life. Jesus died on Passover. We talk about that a lot. A lot of times we don't reference the fact that Jesus didn't just die on a Jewish holiday. He also rose again on a Jewish holiday. He rose on first fruits. He is the first fruits. It is his resurrection that guarantees ours. It is, it is his historical resurrection that guarantees one way, one day, we will, all those who believe in him, all those who have been born of him, will be raised with him. The Greek word faith, uh, we just had a guy come, very intellectual guy that did our leadership thing, and he pointed out the word pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, Greek word. Here's what it means. This is biblical faith. Trust in what we have reason to believe is true. Trust in what we have reason to believe is true. The idea of blind faith is not biblical. The idea is you just need to believe it because it's really important. So you just got to believe you got to you gotta put, put your head and your mind and your intellect in your back pocket and just believe this. That's how important it is. That's not the biblical word for faith. It is trust that's based on a reason to believe. And so I want to have uh, just a word for, for a moment for those of you that might be here today and you've come, graciously come uh, not because you're a believer, but because somebody invited you or the family is coming and it's Easter and you, you, that, that you're, you just happen to be here. Welcome. We're so glad you're here. There's, there's two kinds of unbelievers. One I can't help, one I can help. Here's, here's, the, here's the first kind that I can't help. Sometimes people are cynical and unbelieving because they want to not believe. If you want to not believe, there's nothing that I can say that can help you. you already, you've already made a choice, and no matter how it's framed, no matter what argument is made, when you want to not believe, it, it, you will be able to, to do away with that argument. So here's the second group, and this group I actually can help. Second group, you're an unbeliever here. You're cynical about maybe religion in general, but specifically Christianity. But you are willing to believe if it's true. You just want it to be true. You don't want to believe something because somebody else believes it. You don't want to believe something just because you have to believe it. It's so important. You, You only want to believe it if it is true, if there are actual reasons to believe this is true. I can help you. And the, and, the, and the way we get to help is the witnesses. Um, we can't scientifically prove the resurrection. To scientifically prove it, you'd have to have an experiment to be able to do it again. And it's, it's a historical event. Not, it doesn't work like science. So it's more like a courtroom where you have to bring in witnesses. The first witnesses are the eyewitnesses. And 
And there are, are two groups of eyewitnesses. First is, is the, the men, the, the apostles, um, James and Peter and the 500 that saw him. And then uh, Paul sees him and they, they see the risen Christ physically raised. I want to talk about the apostles because the reason why they were called apostles was not because they were so powerful and they were the early messengers, but because they were the eyewitnesses. When, when they're replacing Judas in Acts 1, the, the, the way they replace him is by saying it's got to be somebody that was there with John the Baptist, there in his whole ministry, somebody that saw the empty tomb and experienced and saw with their own eyes the resurrected Christ. These are the guardians of the truth. Gary Habemus is, uh, Dr. Gary Habemus, a professor at Liberty University, uh, debates the resurrection around the world um, with unbelievers, and he's done all kinds of research on the resurrection, and, but there's a, there's a very interesting thing about New Testament scholarship and uh, what the beliefs are in the academic community. Even unbelieving Scholars believe that the apostles saw an empty tomb and saw an apparition of what they thought was the risen Christ. Unbelievers, unbelievers believe they saw the empty tomb and they saw an apparition, if you would, of the risen Christ. Why are unbelievers willing to grant so much. Well, uh, for a couple of reasons. First, it is an indisputable fact in academia that Christianity started in the Middle East and that it started 2,000 years ago and it started right from the beginning on the resurrection. That was the belief right away. It wasn't added later. It didn't come later. It started just on this idea of the physical resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> why, the, why, why the empty tomb? Why do they grant that they saw the empty tomb? Here's why. Apparitions were known and frequently believed in in the ancient world. The idea that somebody's dead and that you see their ghost or you have a dream about them or they appeared to you, that, that was often believed. You didn't believe in resurrection because you had an apparition. You, that was a given. They're dead somewhere else, but you saw their spirit or their form or their what. To get to resurrection, you have to see an empty tomb combined with an apparition. You can't, you can't get right to resurrection just by, by, by having an apparition. They had to have seen the empty tomb and then experienced this apparition. And for the unbeliever, that, of course, that would all be all it was. Why don't they believe, like the ancient Jews did, when when uh, the, Jesus was risen from the dead, the soldier, the Roman soldiers that were um, commanded to guard over him shared a story because they went to the, the priests and the temple priests who they were working for to make sure that he didn't and told what happened. And they said, um, 
just say that the disciples came and stole the body. And, and the Bible says that that circulated, that story circulated, that the, the disciples broke through. And the reason why the tomb was empty is because the disciples stole the body. Now, that seems like a, a theory that would be uh, easily embraced by an unbeliever. Because it, 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 you don't have to have a miracle then. You just, you just, you just believe that the body was... So why don't, why don't unbelieving scholars believe that? No one believes that. Here's why. <laughs> because the, the early witnesses, the apostles, they gained nothing by their belief in the resurrection. And they lost everything. They lost their jobs. They lost their homes. Eventually, they lost their lives all because of this faith in the resurrection. And the reason why it started, why Christianity started, it was the sincerity of the early believers. It was the sincerity of the apostles. There's no way Christianity can make it otherwise. There's there's no power behind them. There's no money behind them. No one wants this to succeed. Everybody's persecuting it. In fact, everybody's trying to squelch it out. It is entirely on the sincerity of these men who who are willing to lose everything that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's what it's all based on. The eyewitnesses. There's the men and then there are the women eyewitnesses. And uh, N.T. Wright, one of my favorite historians and scholars, uh, writes, and I'm just going to read his words because they're so more, much more eloquent than mine. In the ancient world, Jewish and pagan women were not credible witnesses in the law court. And already, by the time Paul is quoting the public tradition about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, he is saying, here's the story the way we told it. He was crucified for our sins according to the scriptures, and then he was seen by, then he has a list of men, Cephas, by James, by the other early disciples, by 500 at once, last of all by me. We put up our hands and say, excuse me, Paul, where are the women? The answer is that already in the early 50s, the public tradition has airbrushed the women out of the account because the public tradition knew that they were going to be in trouble. We see the trouble when we read Celsus, who a century later pours scorn on the resurrection by saying, quote, this faith is just based on the testimony of some hysterical women. So it's fascinating that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have Mary Magdalene, the other Marys, and the other women. And Mary Magdalene, of all people, we know she has a very checkered career in the past, is chosen as the prime witness. There she is in all four accounts. As historians, we are obliged to comment that if these stories had been made up five years later, let alone 30, 40, or 50 years later, they would never have had Mary Magdalene in this role. To put Mary there is from the point of a Christian apologist wanting to explain to a skeptical audience that Jesus really did rise from the dead, like shooting themselves in the foot. But to us as historians, this kind of thing is gold dust. The early Christians would never, never have made this up. The stories of the women finding an empty tomb and then meeting the risen Jesus must be regarded 
as solidly historical. The witnesses. The eyewitnesses, and then there's the witnesses today. Some of you maybe have seen already the the movie that's out right now called I Can Only Imagine. It's about uh, Bart Millard, the guy that writes this song that became a bestseller and known everywhere. And it's, it's his story. It's the story of how that song got written. And the story, it, it, it's written in remembrance of his dad. I hate to ruin the movie for anybody, but um, whenever anybody says that, it means they're about to ruin the movie for anybody. Um, <laughs> It's about his dad, and, and it's his dad was his, growing up was his worst enemy. His dad beat his mom, drove her away, a mom that he loved, so, so he was left with just him and his dad, and then he was an abuser in every way, verbally, physically. He, he was just the most horrible, horrible dad, and so when Bart became a Christian, he got out of there, never to return, never to come back. His dad abused him in every single sense of, other, than, other than molesting. He abused him. And so he got away and um, he's, he got this band called Mercy Me. And, and they were just kind of playing small little Christian events and... Um, when it, and eventually God said, you've got to go back and you've got to, you've got to forgive your dad. You've got, you've got to forgive your dad and you've got to go back to do it. And so he goes back and something amazing has happened with his dad. His dad has, has gotten saved. And of course, he doesn't trust it and he's waiting for the old dad to come. And, but eventually he forgives him and, and him and his dad... Um, become best friends. He goes from being his worst enemy to his best friend. His dad, who was so filled with pride and anger and self, has become humble and loving. The dad that was against him, the dad that, that constantly was putting him down, now was his biggest cheerleader. And he, he dies of cancer and... Um, and, and he, Bart is at his bedside, and, and he, he has now lost his best friend. And, and so he writes this song. I can only imagine, as he's thinking about his dad going into heaven. And here's the funny thing about the song. His dad isn't mentioned. It's about Jesus. He can't wait to see the one that is so filled with mercy that he could take his dad, the worst of sinners, and transform him into this beautiful man, this wonderful man that the mercy of God could so transform somebody. He can't wait to see Jesus. He can't wait to see this glorious one that was able to do such an act of redemption in his dad. Here's the funny thing. Last year in this church, we did something called the story. And it was all, we went all the way through the Bible. And, but what we decided we would add to it was people's stories. 
And so we, we had a little tear off and I said, if you're willing to give your testimony, sign up. Honestly, I'm picturing like 10 or 15 people willing to get up. I mean, it's a, it's a lot to get up in front of people and talk and, and be vulnerable and share your story. We had over 100 people sign up. We, we had to do one in every service. The, and, and if you could have heard them, and many of you that are part of this church did hear a lot of them, every one of them is a witness. And it's, they've got very different backgrounds and very different stories of where they lived and how they sinned and how they fell and how they did this. But there's one thing in common to all these stories, that Jesus came and saved them. That Jesus' power, his love, that they were this person and now they're this new person. And in every single case, that new person is a more loving, more generous, more kind, and more filled with hope than that old person. That's why they wanted to tell the story. Now, I don't know how your intellect works. Well, that's subjective. That's just that. Guys, these are a lot of witnesses. There are a lot of, there's witnesses all over this city. There's witnesses all over this world. If you open up your mind and accept, these are witnesses. Jesus is alive. God has supplied a witness that Jesus is alive. Sec, uh, thirdly, God's own goodness secures the certain hope. So there is one of my favorite cartoons of Dennis the Menace. Features Dennis. Dennis and Joey are sitting at the kitchen table eating a plate of cookies, and Joey asks this question I wonder what we did that Mrs. Wilson made us these cookies. And Dennis responds and says, This Joey, Mrs. Wilson did not make us these cookies because we are good. Mrs. Wilson made us these cookies because Mrs. Wilson. Is good. It's very hard for human reasoning to grasp unconditional love. We live in a world of unconditional love. I understand Joey's struggle. Um, we must have done something. People don't just do something for no reason. We must have done something for Mrs. Wilson to make us these cookies. And Dennis, however bad he, Dennis is, he at least owns the fact that he's a menace. He's like, Joey, you need to trust me on this. It's not because we're good. It's not because we did anything. But I know Mrs. Wilson. I don't understand why, but Mrs. Wilson loves us. And these cookies, the reason why we have these cookies, it's entirely her own goodness and her own love for us that has produced these cookies. Listen to Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. 
Pastor Tom, I'm not tracking what on earth did any of that mean. I'm, I'm going to just save you. from. I, we could read the whole chapter and then it would make sense. I'm just going to tell you what he's saying. So God made this about his own promise. The, the human race was failing in every way. The Tower of Babel brought judgment. Uh, and God speaks to Abraham. And he says to Abraham... Um, if you will leave this land and, and go out, I'm going to make a great nation of you and I'm going to make you a blessing. And in your seed, one born of you, every family on the earth will be blessed. So God makes this promise that one born, a descendant of Abraham is going to be born into this world. And through that one seed, every single family is going to be blessed. <clears throat> so he has Isaac supernaturally has Isaac and then God asks him to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 22 and take your son, your only son whom you love and sacrifice him on the mountain. And, and so he, he takes him up this mountain and, and is about to sacrifice Isaac and the angel stops him. And, and in verse 16 and 17 of Genesis chapter 22, God says this, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your, they they translate it descendants, but it's seed, as numerous as the stars in the sky and on the sand of the seashore. I swear by myself. Paul says, or Hebrew says, so that we will have unshakable faith. God, sw- God doesn't just make a promise. He's, he makes an oath. And he's got no one to make an oath to. You, he, an oath is always made to someone greater than yourself, but there is no one greater than God. So God swears to himself. I'm, I am going to do this. I am going to bless I'm going to take your seed and it's going to be multiplied in the, whole, the entire world. I swear to myself that this is true. And Paul says the reason why he does it is so that by two unchangeable things, because God can't lie, his promise and his oath, we who have fled to take hope in Jesus would, would have a certain hope. We would have an anchor for our souls. It's all based in the goodness of God. It's all provided by God. A believer's part is to believe. Hebrews eleven nineteen. God says this about Abraham. That Abraham, when he was willing to give his son, interesting, the very thing God was going to do on the cross, give his only begotten son for us. And it says the reason why Abraham was willing to obey God in this is because he believed God was able to raise the dead. He's the first believer in the resurrection. Point four, we're moving right along. The power of certain hope. Jesus has gone into heaven... We are fleeing to take hope to the one that has already gone in. He's already been raised from the dead. He's already there so that we who have fled to this hope might have an anchor to our soul. And that language, 
anchor. Anchor is a ship word. Anchor is, you, it's put down and it anchors you to a spot. And this, is, this anchor, it goes up. It anchors you to heaven. There's an anchor in heaven. And when, you, when you're holding on to this, it, it keeps you in all of life's storms. How does this work? Well, I have a confession to make to all of you. I'm an emotional Packer fan. <laughs> it's funny because I'm, I, I'm not that emotional. I'm not a big feeling guy, but I'm a very emotional Packer fan. And um, so we be, to counter this, we had to make a rule when we, when we got to Minnesota. We get to Minnesota and in 1992. We lived there in 15 years. And um, early on, and the, and the Packers, if you remember the early 90s, pre-Brett Favre, we were, we were horrible. And um, we had a party at our house. It was a Viking Packer game. We had a party and we had all these Minnesota fans. And here's my family. And my son, Matt, is nine years old. And uh, Packers, it's very close all the way. And the Vikings win right at the end. And Matt, Matt just openly weeps. And of course, the Viking fans are, you know, they're... they're, they're so excited and and it and the whole thing just didn't work and when they left I had a little family meeting because Matt was the one that openly wept I couldn't weep because we were in front of all these people <laughs> so I made a rule I made a rule we, we we stand by it to this day we'll never watch a Packer Viking game in the presence of Viking fans again ever <laughs> and for for 15 years we held that we ne- we never did so after 15 years, we are safely, we moved back to Madison. We're safely in Packer country. We are, it's a Packer Viking game. We are, uh, it's, 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 it's a noon game and church goes to 1, 1 So I've got the game taped. We get home. We've got a number of people, uh, family and friends that are watching, uh, that have been waiting to watch the, the game with me. And we are we are watching the game, and it is one of these really nail biters up and down and up and down. And we are somewhere in the third quarter, and I get a text. And of course, I am, my mind is, I'm all in this Packer game. And I'm, so what I'm thinking is when I get this text, who would possibly text me during the Packer game? There is an emergency in the church. I mean, somebody is dying right now. I can't imagine why I'd get a text. I open the text, and it's, it's from my friend, Dave Thomas, in Minnesota, and it just says this, congratulations on your victory. Close the phone. And I start out just bitter. I'm just bitter. Ruined the game for me. But I noticed something. I could still enjoy the game. And when everybody else was falling into despair... Everybody, everybody else was filled with anxiety and what's going to happen. And other people are just, you know how when the Packers do something wrong and they're already behind you, you start this, I expected this, this, and then you just go very, very negative. It, 
it just didn't affect me. <laughs> Congratulations on your victory. I had certain hope. I could just enjoy the game. I got to enjoy all the ups, and I never went down with the downs. I didn't have any anxiety about the downs. I had no depression. I had no despair. I never went dark because congratulations on your victory. <laughs> it is the power of certain hope. You're, you're having a bad day. You're having a bad month. You're ha- you lost your job. You got sick. Somebody died. You just need to pull that cell phone out. Congratulations on your victory. In the end, you're going to get the win. And you're, come on. Come on. There's a movie out called Paul the Apostle. And... uh, Anthony, where are you? All right, listen. Bro, listen, listen. Without ruining the movie, without ruining the movie, I'm just going to give one little thing. It happened at one point. It's, It's 67 AD. The Nero is persecuting Christians. He's blaming the burning of Rome on the Christians, and it's a very, very difficult time for Christians, and Paul is in prison, and the prefect that's overseeing Paul is offended. He's offended with Christianity. He's offended with the Christian God. How can you believe in a God that allows so many horrible, bad things to happen to you and all those that are believing in him? How could you? It doesn't work. Your faith doesn't work. And Paul says this, he says, I want you to imagine a man in the shallow end of the ocean picking up some water and just letting it run through his hands. He said that water that he picked up that ran through his hands, that's our life down here. The ocean is eternity. What Christianity is about is not just about this life and God helping us in this life, in this very brief life. It is eternal life with him. It's about the ocean. Paul says to the early church, if we only have hope for Christ in this life, we are of most men to be pitied. You should feel sorry for us. We are living our life for a lie. We're living our life for something that's not true. We are making sacrifices, denials, allowing persecution, being thought badly of, all this stuff, and it's for no reason if Christ has not risen from the dead. But as he explains to this Roman prefect, the certain hope of heaven eases the pain of whatever trial this life has brought on us. And then finally, before communion, our faith must embrace, must embrace the certain hope. In my devotional this week, I talked about the 
2011 McFarland Triathlon. It's a, it's a co-ed race, and it has three legs to it. The first is the swimming, and it's, it's 16 laps or 32 lengths of the McFarland swimming pool. And the second leg, my brother corrected me because I said one-mile run. It was a five-mile run. And the third leg is a 15-mile bike ride. And whichever team crosses the finish line first wins the gold medals. And they had medals, and they had, I mean, it was everything. And so my, my brother Mike had been in this year after year, and this, this year, 2000, his, his swimmer couldn't do it, so he asked me if I'd be willing to swim on his team. And I, I'm thinking, what a great opportunity to get in shape. <laughs> so I hastily say, yeah, I'll be your swimmer. So I decide if I'm going to, because he tells me how long it's going to be, and that doesn't sound like that much, 32 lengths of the pool, it's not that big of a deal. Um, <laughs> So I go, I, go to the, I go to the Princeton Club the next week, and I'm going to just do a little experiment. I can't, I, I'm, I'm exhausted after four lengths. I am just, I, I, am, I am literally unable to go on after four lengths. And so I'm thinking, I'm going to let Mike know that I'm not going to be on the team. I'm like, you know, I just, I hate to drop out. I hate to quit. I hate to disappoint him. Let, why don't I do a little more training? Well, here's what I found out. If I do half front crawl, I do front crawl for, for, for two lengths and then breaststroke for two lengths, I can, I've got endurance. I can catch my, breasts, uh, my breath during the breaststroke and I can do the front crawl. And it's not the fastest thing, but this is endurance. This is marathon and, and I can do it. So I decide to stay in um, based on this because how good can these other teams be anyway? I mean, seriously, this is not the Olympics. This is McFarland. <laughs> so it's game day. We are loaded up. We're, we're, they've got the, the lanes out for swimming, and there's two in each lane. There's so many teams. And I've got a 16-year-old girl that is in my lane. <laughs> I, I cannot tell you how wrong I was about, <laughs> about McFarland. This young lady was not just very fast, she was very strong. She took off like this was a sprint, and she never slowed up. She didn't just beat me, she lapped me. She, she, she lapped me. I literally, I, I'm in the water, and I'm realizing how shameful this is, that I am getting absolutely annihilated. And by the time I, I think she finished five minutes in front of me. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I mean, it was just, it was that bad. It, it's very discouraging to be swimming and getting beat that badly. I get in, I tag Mike. I go to the locker room and I, I just, I'm just covered with shame because I didn't just ruin it for me. I ruined it for the whole team. And so... I get in the locker room. Part of it was that you, were, you swim and then you come to the award ceremony. It's kind of a citywide ceremony thing. And I, I just, I, I, made, I made something up. I, I, I literally could not face anybody. I left a message on Mike's phone. Thanks for including me. I'm so sorry for, for my performance. 
um, I'm not going to be at the awards ceremony. I, th- I made up some reason why I couldn't be. I get a call two hours later, and it's Mike. And he says, uh, are you home? I want to stop by and drop off your gold medal. I said, come again. He said, he said I, wanna, I want to drop by because I've got your gold medal. I said, Mike, what are you talking about? Well, he said, let me tell you the story. He said, you were way behind. And he said, you tagged me, and after my, my five miles, we were even farther behind. <laughs> and then I tagged Darcy. Well, it turns out Darcy... Darcy is not just a good athlete. Darcy tried out for the Olympics. And she got on that bike. And she rode faster than anybody else for 15 miles. She passed everybody and won the race. (laughs) Folks, it doesn't seem right that I would get a gold medal having performed so badly. But this is the gospel. The gospel is not about your performance. It's about being on the right team. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good Jesus was. Jesus won the gold for all of us. But here is the sobering thing about the gospel. To get the gold, you actually have to be on his team. You have to join his team. Paul says, let me just read it to you in 1 Corinthians 15. And I, ushers, I'm so sorry. I I made it sound like communion was in two seconds. It is in one minute, but... (laughs) By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. The, the, the feeling is, is some people have gotten away from Jesus and the resurrection to, the, they're on their own team now. They, they just, some were saying that resurrection is not even important and I'm, and they're philosophers and you know, we're all good and we're all, as long as you're a good person. And Paul says, no, no, if you're on your own team, you will not be saved. If you're on your own team and your own righteousness and your own goodness, you can't win this thing. To get the gold, you actually have to be on his team. You have to believe. You have to accept what he has done on your behalf. Look at 1 John 5, and this is where we're going to go to communion. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. In his own goodness, God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. And then listen to the certain hope. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know know that you have eternal life. Guys, it's not how good you are. It's whose team you're on. Could we have every head bowed before we take communion together?
Jesus loves you. Jesus came to this earth and died in your place. He took your sins. He died for your bad performance. He died for your shame. He he took everything on himself. And today he's inviting people to be on his team. He's already won the gold. He invites us to share in it. And everyone who finishes in him gets the same prize that he got. Maybe you're here today, wherever you were at the beginning of the service, and God is dealing with you. The Bible says, Jesus says this in Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, anyone, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how religious you've been or are, doesn't matter. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into them. Jesus is knocking. Please, please don't make the mistake of thinking because Jesus is knocking that you've opened. Jesus knocking and you opening are two different things. Jesus is waiting on you. He's knocking. He's trying to get your attention. He uses all of life. He uses our trials and our sins and and beauty and mess. He's knocking and he's saying, I love you. I died for you. I have a gift for you, which is a relationship with me. Open up the door. If that is you, you can own your own sinfulness. And today you want to own his goodness. And you know, you know that God is knocking. You don't know how you know, but you know he's knocking on your life. And you want to open that door. I've got every head bowed and every eye closed. This is between you and God. The reason I have a raise of hands is because I like to give the prayer because somebody gave me the words to open my door. So if that's you, would you just raise your hand real high right now? God is knocking and you want to open the door. I see that hand. I see that hand and that hand and that hand. God bless you. And, you can, and once you put those up, you can put those down. Is there anybody else by upraised hand? Today, God's knocking and you want to open the door. I see that hand. God bless you. I see that hand. Thank you. God bless you. Anybody else by upraised hand? Anybody else? I got you, ma'am. Thank you. Bless you. I got you, ma'am. Or sir, bless you. Thank you. I got the balcony right up here. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you, ma'am. God bless you. Jesus, you're so good. You're so good. If you raised your hand, would you just slip it over your heart right now and pray something like this? Lord, thank you for your great love. Thank you for loving me so much that you died on a cross for me. You rose from the dead for me. Lord, today I want to choose. I want to get on your team. I want to open my heart. Jesus, I am opening my heart right now. Thank you. Come in, Lord. Come in, save me, wash me, and cleanse me. I receive right now your gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have communion together. The ushers are going to serve. And all I ask is that you hold on to the emblem. Come on, guys. Um, If you wouldn't mind just holding on to the emblems until everybody is served. And then we will sing while we get it. And then we will uh, partake together. God bless you. Everyone, everyone that loves Jesus, doesn't matter whether you go to this church, is welcome to, to have communion with us. Even if you just, for the first time, accepted him. This is for you. We'd come.
up to the mountains of Galilee, just like he asked us to, where we'd sat at the master's feet, where we'd watched as he taught, where he'd fed the multitudes and we'd marveled. And suddenly, it was like old times again. There he was, standing at our side, that old familiar smile, that warm, comforting presence, Jesus, alive and well. Can you imagine what it must have felt like after the shock, the horror, the, the disbelief at his death? I mean, we were crushed, disillusioned. Everything we'd lived and hoped for just turned to ash. It didn't seem any point to anything anymore. No hope. No future. Nothing to lift the pall of darkness that overwhelmed us. Do you wonder that we fell down at his feet and worshipped? It was as if we had woken from a dream to find the sun shining brightly and we were terrified to close our eyes, even for a moment, lest the darkness return and our nightmare begin again. I know it was foolish, but we actually hoped that nothing had changed. If we could just pick up where we'd left off, you know, follow in the master's footsteps again. But of course, we couldn't. I mean, everything had changed. He had changed. We had. I mean, they tried to lay him in a tomb and he emerged victorious. They tried to destroy him and he couldn't be defeated. This was a message the whole world needed to hear. His triumph over evil, his victory of love. Good news. Not just for us, but for everyone. Yeah, the work would continue just as we'd hoped. Only this time, it needed us to carry it forward. It needed our willingness to speak, our faith to respond, our courage to Make disciples of all nations so they too could know this risen Christ and respond in turn. It couldn't just be us and him anymore. There was work to be done, a message to share, a kingdom to build, and he needed our help to build it. We'd come and met him just as he told us to. Now, it was time to go.
on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. Let's eat together. When the supper was ended, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. And it's going to be poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. Let's drink together. Could we stand? Lord, thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for hope that lives today. Lord, I pray that we would value it. I pray we would treasure it. I pray that we would protect it in this world of oftentimes darkness and anxiety and depression and afflictions of all kinds. This is a burning hope that we need to cherish. And as as Curtis said, we we need to share it too because this world needs you, Jesus. Bless us now as we go. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Happy Easter, guys. God bless you.